Welcome to Bale Street. Hosted by Danny Moses and Ira Juddelson, this is the show that takes a larger-than-life look at the world of crime and finance. Learn more and subscribe today at BaleStreet.com. Hello and welcome to Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Juddelson. This week on Bale Street, we are lucky to have Stacy Richmond in the studio today. Thank you. Greetings, gentlemen. Greetings, Stacy. <laughs> Stacy's here. We're going to talk to Stacy about some of her infamous cases. She's one of the top criminal defense attorneys in the world. Most nice. powerful female defense attorney in my world, at least. I wouldn't even say just female. Thanks, I would say overall. And then in conjunction with that, we're going to talk about whistleblowing, which I think is a underestimated tool that most people have, they don't realize. When you talk about whistleblowing, what are you exactly you talking about? We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about whistleblowing from in, inside <laughs> well, of gotta, a company. I got to protect Stacy here. Outside of a company. We're not whistleblowing okay. on Stacy. Okay. So we're excited to have Stacy Richmond here. And Stacy, welcome into the studio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I know Congratulations, Ira, gentlemen. Thank, thank you. you. Well, you're going to help make this a success. So, Ira, maybe you want to introduce or. Well, I met Stacy, I want to say going back almost 15 years. Stacy's dad, Murray who on the streets they call Don't Worry Murray and maybe one of the most top defense attorneys actually also in the country in New York, put me on the map. Her dad put me on the map. I got into this business in 97, 98, and he was my first powerful attorney that basically told the world about me. And obviously in my book, The Fixer, I talk about how my first big case was at the Javits Center and my daughter was being born and Murray called me and he said, kid, what are you doing? You got to get down here. I got so many guys. And da, 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 da. I said, Mar, my daughter was just born. He goes, oh, mazel tough. But you heard all the Italians in the background. That's fucking great, Ira. That's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> and I said, Mar, what am I going to do? This is my friend. He goes, don't worry about it. They're going to stay in jail for you. And everybody stayed in jail for me. And Murray gave me one of my biggest paydays ever. And since that day, obviously, I've taken off of my business. But I met Stacy after that. And Stacy has just grown her brand and her business. And every single time I get the phone call from her cell phone or the office, I know it's going to be someone special or more than anything, a big celebrity because Stacy has done massive celebrity cases. So, Stacy, when you're not protecting elephants in Thailand or doing some animal <laughs> conservation, which I applaud you on, talk about how you got into the business, which is an obvious answer, your father, but why you were drawn to it, maybe. Well, I have to say there's nothing greater than standing up for another human being. And it's really an honor. And it's a thrill. So there's very few professions where you can experience the thrill of victory and also the agony of defeat. But you're actually fighting its true battle, its wits, its humanity. It's everything that you could possibly think of, why people go to the movies, what people want to do. Our everyday, Ira knows, is exciting. There's no two days that are the same. I could call Stacy at 10 o'clock at night and either she's in Thailand having a good time, or in the office writing a brief. No, it, it, I could be in court. Yeah, right. I Often mean, I'll be in court until God knows what time. She's all over the place, and I'll say, Stace, what's going on? She's like, I'm in the office, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, or I'm at a raiment. It's just amazing. It uh, used to be that I had raiments 24 hours, and if I was a little concerned about the court. judge, I would sleep in my car, and where it was, like you, the rats would be dancing on the roof of the car. It was crazy. Oh, you said winning in losing are both exciting, but what's your best win and what's your worst loss? I don't think that you can say what's the best or the worst's the worst because as you're involved in something with someone, every battle is meaningful because it's a human being at the other side. So the thrill of victory at a trial when that jury comes back and says not guilty or where you do a contested hearing and the judge is going on and on about the law and you're like, is he going to go my way? Is he going to go the other way? And then he says, 
I'm suppressing case dismissed and your client throws his arms around you and you know he's walking out the door and you gave him back his life. It's phenomenal. So what was the most shocking then, I should say, unexpected verdict where either your client was found guilty, you appealed and won, or there was some situation where your client got off completely and you weren't surprised per se, but is there one particular case that stands out? You know something? I've really been lucky. I've had so many phenomenal experiences. I, I can't pick one out of the number that I've done. I can't even answer that question. It's virtually impossible because I could sit here for hours. Do you keep a record of all your wins and losses like the back of a baseball card and all your stats? <laughs> My father actually does and criticizes <laughs> me for not having done so. Ah. And then I get a call from somebody like, you saved me 15 years ago. I'm like, I am so happy. Have you done anything else? Are you okay? Is everything good? Why are you calling me? Right. <laughs> Stace, do me a favor. Take us through some of the celebrity cases that you've done. I know we worked on Little Wayne together, obviously, in the beginning. We've done DMX together. I'm thinking right now, We obviously, we worked on Ja Rule's case together a long time ago. You worked Jay-Z as well, right? But not together, but... I did one of, yeah, I did one yep. of his arraignments, sure, yep. years ago. Is there a special challenge to representing a celebrity because everybody in the you world the is pressure. so interested? The pressure, but yeah, I well, mean, there, everybody in the world is interested and the press is following well, there, you. There's a couple of different levels. Yes, you have like the insanity of the press and depending upon the person, some people are famous abroad and their press are absolutely merciless. I mean, I've been in car chases. Well, I'm the person driving. It's just nuts. And when you're dealing with a celebrity, there's a safety factor for them, okay? Then there's the aspects of their career because once there's an accusation, the concerns are, well, how is that going to affect their bankability, the people that are hiring them, their brands? So you're doing damage control also? Well, there's damage control. There's a whole other level of strategy. And it applies to the regular person too. Like I by no means do mostly celebrities. No, of course not. And celebrities are people too. I do people. So you have a person that may be an investment banker. Well, there are cascading concerns for that person too. So for whoever's profession that you're dealing with, just celebrities happen to have to be much more public. And you have TMZ chasing you around. All day. Have you done some high profile Wall Street cases that you can think of? Everything goes in waves. So there was this whole big period of Wall Street situations going on because there was like a trend for those for a while. And one of the great Wall Street results I got was what's known as a federal deferred prosecution, where they agreed to drop the charges against the person. Unfortunately, what most people don't understand, as opposed to the state, if you have a federal deferred prosecution, even if you're acquitted federally, the arrest stays there because they just want to make sure they put their hands on you. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Did they lose their license then? No, nope. I maintained their license. No mark went on the U-4. But when he would apply for jobs, the fact of the arrest would still appear, unfortunately. And that's true even for like, you know, after the murdering cases, even though they were all acquitted, still on their record. Right, which damaged their whole brand. Their, it their it whole damaged career. their brand significantly because those were really phenomenal, innovative guys that really had done nothing wrong. They merely had tried to like be a positive support to the area from which they rose. What was this case you're talking about? Murdering. Oh, okay. Wow. Stace, I get this question all the time. People look at me in my business as being a bail bondsman and say, how could you take that person out? You know what that person did? Or did you meet the person? He's heinous. He's disgusting. You ever get that feeling when you're, I mean, obviously you take an oath to become an attorney, but you're representing someone you just don't love or someone that you just love and you want to go all the effort because nobody knows what's behind the door for or that you, person. Or you turn down the chance to represent. To date, I really haven't turned anybody away because I look at every person as like an individual human being. And so, yeah, you can be accused of a lot of stuff. It doesn't mean you did everything they're accusing you of. And then 
even if you've done some of the things that have brought you to this point, well, how do we get to this place? And that, I mean, when you look at the development of the Supreme Court cases, it's all about individualism. What are we doing here? What is it that this individual, what's his components? What's his makeup? How did this occur? Why? And if we want to really do anything about crime, we have to be assessing those aspects. I mean, we are involved on so many levels of societal concern that we get to see. That's very true. I get a lot of people, they look at me, like when I go to a cocktail party, I'm like a circus bear. They're like, oh, do you know people that kill people? Well, yes, I do. I know, <laughs> I know quite a few people that oh. kill people. Allegedly? <laughs> Allegedly. No, no, Alleg- actually have oh, done okay. it. <laughs> funny. Uh, Dan? Yes. I'm going to talk about, there's a person out there who has a lot of lawyers who I'm sure you've come across in your career in the Trump organization or Donald Trump individually. Can you talk about anything you've ever done with him or his family? And I'd love to get your thoughts on Michael Cohen and... Well, years ago, I left New York to get out from under my last name because my dad is very well known. And I did not want to be that kid that goes to court and like, oh, you're a lawyer because daddy said so. No, I wanted to go in another part of the country, do a different kind of law and get treated like crap like everybody else when they start (laughs) and make my own bones. So I went out to California, past California bar, and I did entertainment and business litigation. While there, I got to work at a boutique firm that had also a phenomenally interesting clientele, many celebrities and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Ed McMahon had come into the office once and I came racing out from my office. I'm like, are you here for my check? Where are the balloons? And they're like, go back to your office. (laughs) But at that time, we ended up representing Ivana Trump in a portion of the divorce. So I got to draw maps of Mar-a-Lago and understand all of that background. Did you, Secret Service come and picked up those records, your drawings of Mar-a-Lago? Uh, it, was many, it was more than 20, well, it was about 20 years ago, I guess. Such limitations, though. I don't have any of those records. It was not my <laughs> firm. I was merely an associate. Did you actually get paid or you still have an outstanding? It was not my bill to be paid. So okay. I, I understand that the firm was paid. What I don't about know. this Michael Cohen situation with the rating of... The interesting thing to me about that is, and actually, another person I would recommend to your show to come on, he just wrote the book, The Pretender. He's a former FBI agent that became a defense attorney. And he wrote an interesting article of late. And basically, is this a question of an invasion of the attorney-client privilege? Like, we may all have our issues with what's going on in our administration. Some people are quite happy... I'm not amongst those people, but the raid on an attorney's office, I haven't read the supporting affidavits. I'm not sure of the why, but the question then becomes, is this an erosion of something that we constitutionally have cherished in our country? And if it's okay in this particular aspect, well, then we've just moved the marker. And in moving the marker, it moves the marker for everything else. And one of the most powerful ads I ever saw was, it was an ACLU ad. It was a picture of the Statue of Liberty. And they're like, what's missing here? And you looked at the picture, and it was just the face of the Statue of Liberty and the rays of light. And you're looking at it, you're like, I don't know, it looks okay to me. But it was missing one of the rays of light. And you don't notice as it's happening. So it's important for each of us to understand our rights, be vigilant, and pay attention to these little movings of the markers. I know you're very busy, but we all watch a lot of legal dramas, TV shows, and they portray what having a lawyer is and what that job is like. You mean like Law and Order? Law and Order. Or, you Can know, you imagine how many times I walk into a courtroom every day and all I hear in my head is, dun, dun. <laughs> so <laughs> annoying. But I mean, how much of that stuff that people perceive is the truth is just completely bullshit? Well, from your perspective, I don't know what you're referencing, so I can't really answer your question. Are there any major tropes of legal dramas that you know of that you're like, all right, these are a few things that people come to me and they say, well, that's how they do it in law and order. And you go, no, it's okay. not right. Yeah, okay, there's a couple of things. Like in the middle of a cross-examination, the DA or the defense attorney does not get to turn around to talk to the jury, just directly talk to the jury. That never happens. Every time I see Sam Watterson or whatever, who I like as an actor, he was wonderful, fantastic. It just doesn't happen that way. 
The idea that things are wrapped up in an hour, not happening. These cases take a year, two years at times. Oh, longer than that. And We've I, been on cases <laughs> five, six, seven. That Jersey years. one, no, that I, mob case yeah. in Jersey took eight years. Eight years. And another thing that really Sorry. annoys me is that I've never been in the room with my client and the DA. My client just says to me, shut up. I just want to tell them what happened. That does not <laughs> ever, no, that doesn't happen. No. So you were going to have a show. I don't know what happened to it in 2012. Oh, Robert yeah. De Niro was going to produce Family the, Affair. It's right? still going on, right? Oh, it is? It's, not, it's, not, it's not Family Affair. There's so, lots of stuff still going on with that. Yeah. You can't talk about that. It's, it's NBC Universal. It's going to happen. Okay. We're talking to people. Right. I'll believe it when I say I'm not it, giving ho- up my day job. I like my day job. This Hollywood world, besides you, Danny, of course, because you made your movie. Whatever. It's just very <laughs> difficult. The other concern is that it is very difficult to portray our realities. Well, I, mean, I would you never want to do reality do, and I can't No, do I would reality. never want to do a reality show right. and we either one can't. of us actually could. Oh, I could do it tomorrow so could you. But I have a funny side story about that, but I digress. But the Give fact of the us. matter this is, is what we're here for. Well, one time some guy came to talk to me and my dad about a reality show and I, he was meeting us at Elaine's and that's no longer around as a restaurant. But I was late getting there and there was no cab. So I saw a guy that I knew that had a Harley. He's like, oh, just get on the back of my bike. So he drives me up on his Harley to the Upper East Side right. and he drives onto the sidewalk, lets me up right at the door, walk <laughs> in. I said, Hattie, you know, the bartender I knew. And I told my dad, I'm like, this was so fun. I just got on this Harley, blah, blah, and, and the reality show. And so you could put that on your show. He's like, no, no, nobody would believe that. I'm like, but that just, just happened. happened right now. Let me guess, you're wearing a Halston dress? No, I wasn't wearing a Halston <laughs> dress, but my shoes were fabulous. I love it. Love it. I want to talk about, back to Ira's first point, about being a woman in this industry. There's a lot of female judges, I noticed, but there's fewer female criminal defense attorneys, if I'm not mistaken, just from reading the press and so forth. What's that like? And am Well, I, wrong I mean, I've been very lucky that my dad has always taken me to see women judges. And I know some phenomenal women attorneys that have forged the way before me. And I look forward to always bringing more people up. I get very nervous that I look behind me and I don't see younger people coming into the industry for the reasons of really fighting for rights. But as a woman, you know, sometimes you have to get the client to understand that you have the strength of anyone else. You have a lot of cultural barriers. Sometimes you'll walk into a place and there'll be a guy and they're like, what, a a girl? And they don't have respect for a woman. But once they come to understand that you can be ferocious as a woman in the nicest possible way and in a lovely dress and be as effective or more so, then it's all about the fight. Can you bring the power? Yes. So it feels like Trump will end up empowering a younger generation especially females, since he's attacking the justice system all the time from various angles, that maybe women will be inspired to make a difference and get involved in the profession more. Are you getting phone calls? Well, I think what we've seen in the whole pussy grab movement, I guess it's separate from Me Too movement, is that you see people getting out there and you see a resurgence of political activism that we really haven't experienced in a long time. And all law is local, so you have to get involved. So to the extent that it inspires any person, man or woman, to get involved, that's important because people have become complacent and then they don't take action and then they complain about what happened. Get out there, learn your rights and get moving. Stacey, you were the head of the Bar Association in New York. I was uh, the New York Criminal Bar Association. And now you stepped away from it. Yeah, well, it's hard to manage a couple of years of a bar association and a full practice. So How'd you do it? You just do it. (laughs) Whatever you have to do, there are no excuses. You just do it. And how was it? Obviously, we saw each other a lot in court dealing with all the intricacies of being the head of the Bar Association. Because I remember we would talk and you'd be like, I I can't believe this and I can't believe that. And I'd say, Stace, just 
Well, the, part of the concerns are you see even where attorneys are losing their rights. Like there was a scandal. And so attorneys, and this affects you too, Ira, because the level that we get involved with, attorneys are no longer able to get notices to the warden. So before your client is brought upstairs, right before arraignment, we used to be able to go downstairs and see our clients right. inside central booking. We are no longer permitted to do that. And it is very important to me to get that right back because one thing that we have seen, and there's been a lot of cases about it, is that DAs will be able to go take your client out of central booking and speak to them on video sometimes. How is it that a district attorney gets access to your client or any potential client before their attorney does? What was the rationale for taking that away? There are certain provisions. There's the 18B law. So it's overflow from legal aid. And people were going downstairs and saying, oh, do you have any money? So use this guy under the guise of 18B. So there was some sort was, of scandal. There were indictments. Yes, a number I of attorneys did, I did actually. I some of the bells on those cases, yeah, actually. And that was, it was a terror because it was a slander upon everybody. You know, it only takes one bad apple. You know, there's some fantastic cops out there. But there are some cops that are really spoiling the look for everybody. Well, how many times have you interrogated a cop on a cross-exam? You just know he's lying. Well, I just got a great result for an individual, and I had researched the cop, and I found that even the federal court found the guy incredible, not like fantastic, like not credible. (laughs) And then I cross-examined him, and I caught him, and I had a judge who really did not want to find him not credible. And I wrote, I penned him in, I did my research, and then they were going to backdoor it and find another way for them to let the statement in. And I had the statement, everything put out of the case. Well, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for trial. And they're like, don't you want this offer? I'm like, no, let's go to trial. Let's go. And pick a jury, one witness, two witnesses. It's time for this officer to come back. I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's get him on the stand. And they're like, well, something we forgot to tell you. He got suspended. I'm like, well, where's the paperwork? What did you get suspended for? He had an affair with his CI. She was a crackhead and she stole his gun and tried to sell it. And I'm like, and you don't get fired for that? That happens every day. I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, where's the paperwork? Well, we told you. So now you could go in and cross examine. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Because then he can say, no, you need to know your rules, of course. So I want the paper so that I can make sure that I can impeach him. So eventually the case folded. My client was looking at 15 years. He left crying happy. It's a happy day. That goes to a question. Is it true that you don't ask anybody a question that you don't already know what the answer is going to be? Yes, unless no matter what the answer is, it can't hurt you. Okay. You watching a lot of Ari Melber, are you? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time to watch anything. <laughs> what do you think about bail reform? What that, aspect? Okay, so the aspect <laughs> we can go, that, All right, here right, we go. Okay. And we're going. No, I don't want to hear the question. <laughs> no, there's a lot of movement going on. I do think there is, on the smaller crimes or the misdemeanors or so forth, where people can't make $500 bail and they're kept in prison and really- It's ridiculous. ridiculous. I agree too, but we're we're on the same page. I want to know Stacey's viewpoint in general, when it's necessary, when it's not, and if it's tainted in the sense that it really harms African-Americans- more than anyone else. There's a lot of truth to that. So I'd love Absolutely. to hear. I mean, it hurts anybody from a lower economic aspect. And the idea that you can be arrested for something petty and you can sit in jail for more time than the deal is worth or the item. I mean, you got a kid that steals a backpack. I think this was a kid on well, Rikers. He spent years on the, Rikers. But well, we got to remember something with Khalif Browner. And I was on that show with Spike and Jay Z. His bail was $3,000, but he had a hold. And then at that, that point, mean? What does that he mean? had a probation hold. So he was unbailable. He was not bailable. Then when he became bailable, at that point, 
They just changed the law where they said you have to set two forms of bail. And that legal aid attorney never went back. So I understand what Stacey's saying. And I'm all for it, too, because, listen, I'm a bail bondsman. I make money from commercial bail bonds. But I believe that there shouldn't sometimes be $500 bails. I should believe there shouldn't be $1,000 bails. But remember, and this is Stacey could affirm this. When a judge sees a rap sheet and he or she sees that this person has gotten one, two, five different chances on RORs and just doesn't respect the court system, sometimes a judge has to set a bail to have someone be accountable for their actions, correct? Right. But, you know, there are other accommodations that we can make. You know, there are other forms of bail provided to us in the penal law that are more akin to federal bail. And I don't want to advocate against IRA, but I even in Brooklyn got them to take what is an effect of federal posting by putting a lien against a property. A lot of people don't have property. So what are you going to put a lien against? But, you know, you could have a responsible parent show up and they can say, okay, I want you to call into, I don't know, Osborne or something. There are other things that can be done to approach certain people. But here's the opposite side to that, Stace. What happens if you let that happen and that person doesn't show up to court? Who's going out to get them? It's costing the city and the taxpayer and the warrant squad to go out there. That's no, coming out of people who live there's in Brooklyn. No, there's Pocket. no question that there is a point to bail. Right. But it needs to be reassessed in terms of its application. So there is a happy medium in between. There's always a happy medium. Not everyone's going to be happy. Right. But there's always a happy medium. So this product promise, which I'm sure you're well aware of, Jay-Z got behind it. A couple of venture capital investors, they raised three or four million dollars and they're signing up. The first county they signed California, up in California. Right? And they're trying to bring it everywhere where basically it's an app that helps you know when your court data is, helps you find a job just does things so you can go on living with your life. It's really important because some people become enmeshed in the system and they have absolutely no idea what their responsibilities are. They don't know what's happening around them. And yeah, that's important. I told Ira this, you guys would be powerful voices for this company and could really help them move along. And so at some point we're going to have them on here. Well, there's also another aspect that we need to be concerned about is that the courts don't always approve bails if there's no source. Well, not just a source, but the source needs to have an influence over the individual. So the individual is going to like, sure, I'll sign up. And then this guy's going to be a public policy issue. Yeah, right. I agree. That's a concern, too. Of course. I mean, listen, we've done I can't even imagine how many cases Stacey has sent to me and vice versa. And there's been battles. We've had battles where DAs and judges won't let our client out the door because of whether it be public policy or ill-gotten gains or whatever we decide well, sometimes to, I, the I road think, that we go down. I, sometimes I think that there's also what people need to keep in mind is the New York Post factor. Judges, and this was the Judge yes. Duckman case so many years ago, he had appropriately, based on the person's record, let a guy out and then he killed somebody. So people don't want to be that person. And there's a lot of fear. And it's a justifiable fear. Of course. For sure. But how many judges do we know that don't want to be that judge on the New York Post of the Daily News? Well, no, no, that's the case. But sometimes DAs also ask things that are so unreasonable and judges go along with it despite the application. And I don't find that there's justification in that either. I mean, for instance, the case that we had with Ernie. Okay. He sat in for three, three years. years because they asked for remand, okay? Ultimately, we went through a five-month oh, trial. Gosh. It was a hung jury. I got two of the main counts dismissed, trial order of dismissal, and they gave me what I asked for as a reasonable result four years earlier. Our client should have been out on bail two days afterwards, probably, and I might be wrong, but might have taken a plea within the year if he was out on bail. Depending upon what Depending the issue Depending upon what the plea was. Yeah, not to what, what they had what, accused him. What they him asked him of, of course. Stacey, final question for you on this subject matter in general. What trends are you seeing right now 
at the state and local level, just in terms of willingness to prosecute dollars in the budget? Is it less? Is it more? What trends are you seeing? And harsher, less harsh? In terms, of- I think that we are seeing a trend to much harsher prosecutions. If you look at the various divisions in the district attorney's offices, I mean, really going to your aspect, there are economic prosecutions that are often driven by companies. And there was just a really interesting Supreme Court case, whether or not you can ask in terms of your damages, all of the investigation that a company does into finding out their fraud, and then they want to have recruitment for that. But each place, and of course, within the sexual harassment thing, there's a huge pendulum swing to, I think, a little too harsh of the prosecution, where it's justified, of course, prosecute. Just because I'm a defense attorney does not mean I believe that, oh, nobody's done anything wrong. I mean, this is society. This is the human exchange. But yeah, they need to justify their funding. They need to keep their prosecutions up. And that's part of it. Great. I want to go back real quickly. So one of the first questions that Danny asked you was about your favorite case, your least favorite case, or something most memorable. And I know you really believe that you're standing up for every single person. Every single person deserves a good defense. You fight really, really hard for them. You're a tough, tough person. But has there ever been a case or a client or a few clients that ever really scared you, that just sitting across them, not so much even what they did, but just the person just gave you this creepy, scary aura and you couldn't contain it. I can't say that I've liked every... (laughs) Oh, poor Danny. I'll defend you, Danny. God help Um, us all. I can't say that I've liked everyone that I've represented. One thing that really needs another approach is mental health. And mental health issues are something that significantly concern me because mental health then also often bridges into drugs and then you have wild behaviors. So I think that that might be my answer to your question is the failure to address those aspects because those are the people they can't control themselves, let alone anybody else's concern about them. And do you feel sometimes that with mental health problems that it's tough for you to even be able to defend them because they might not? I don't know. I might get... Mr. Sam A, Mr. Sam B, Mr. Sam C. I don't know who I'm going to be talking to at times. So that can be a concern. We have a, a case concern. right now like that, Stace, don't we? Yes, I'm not going to be discussing Neither that now. <laughs> we talking about Harvey Weinstein? No. <laughs> no, no, no. We're talking about somebody else, and we've done about probably about six bails for him. Yes. I won't mention his name on the air because the case is still going, but. Oh, yes. I know that. And you what? don't know what you're going to get from him. You're going to get nice. What's your Crazy. Harvey Weinstein update since Stacy probably can't? Stacy probably can't come on it. I don't know what's happening. And the only thing I could tell you, police sources are telling me that it could be imminent, but who knows? Okay, great. Stacy, thank you. I hope you'll hang around for this next segment. When we come back, we're going to talk about the whistleblower program right here on Bell Street. Welcome back to Bale Street. We're going to cover a topic that should happen more often than it does, which is whistleblowing. Oh, wait a second. And I'm not talking about rats. Ira. Okay. Your world, yeah. whistleblowing is okay. My world, it really isn't okay. So whistleblowing has been around forever, but actually started back in the government days. It was whistleblowing on government employees. That's actually how it kind of began years ago. And then after the financial crisis in 2011, the SEC and the CFTC designed a new whistleblower program. You don't have to be an employee to whistleblow, which is really interesting. You can be an outside person and whistleblow whether you think there's a... Well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Hold on. Didn't somebody try to whistleblow on Madoff for years? 
He did. No but one did, listened. Did no, exactly. No, he did. That's what ended up getting But him. no one happened. It had happened well, for it, years. It ended up happening, and he made a lot of money. Who did? The guy that whistle blew. And he, 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 if he, he made was, over $100 million, potentially. Really? You get between 10 and 30% as your settlement. Let me continue. Wait, and then 10 you, and 30% of money that didn't exist? Well, made off money. He, <laughs> they actually recouped 10 or $12 million, Amazingly. So going. he got somewhere between 10 and 30% of that. So- $250 million just on financial crimes have been awarded in whistleblower fees, and that ranges from 10 to 30%. So the amount that these people are getting, those fines are obviously in the billions, right? And I could go through all those, but it can be anything from Bank of America had a situation that just resulted in $83 million worth of whistleblower payments, where turns out post-financial crisis, believe it or not, from 2009 to 2012, the bank was actually engineering people's deposits at Merrill Lynch and their stocks and creating artificial loans against them so that Merrill Lynch would not have to put up X amount of capital so that it appeared to the regulators if they had more capital than they did. And it saved them $20 million a year. And they ended up paying several hundred million dollars in fines. It was a 20% settlement. So it was 83 million. There are companies out there right now that when they went to develop these rules in 2011, there's a comment period. 305 page rule. And we can attach that. I'm sure people are going to want to read that, right? <laughs> I, I would so, read 304 pages. I the, wouldn't read the last the, page. <laughs> the people that opposed it most, that wrote the most comment letters, were these big banks Wells Fargo, JP Morgan. And what they said was whistleblowers should be required to internally report their issues prior to excellently reporting them to, to the SEC. That's a procedure that they should follow. Well, Wells Fargo, who just got fined billions of dollars for what they did by opening up those fake accounts, yes. all okay. People were fired inside of Wells Fargo, it turns nope. out, after they reported it. But nobody got arrested. No, but the board's gone and the CEO's right. gone. But of course, who pays the fines? The shareholders for Wells Fargo. But no, people, heads did roll. But the point is that no one's going to report something internally to think that they're going to get fired and they're not sure if something's really going on. So anyway, SEC allowed you to report directly to them. And what they said was, if you follow the protocol and you reported it internally, you have 120 days from the time that you report for the company to respond to you. And if they don't, then you can come to us. If you go straight to them, they want you to go to the company directly, but the fines range between 10 and 30% of the award. They'll give the lower end of the award if you don't go to the company first. So you can still get a whistleblower award. You you would have to go to the company first to get a higher one. So that was part of it. So think about cryptocurrencies. Are we going to go back to this? Well, just think about it for a second. Now the SEC is requiring these cryptocurrencies and these ICO that you're involved in initial coin offerings to register. Once you register with the SEC, it's whistleblower time, baby, because- a lot of funky stuff has been going on in that world. Yeah, but they're weeding out the garbage. Right, but if they regulate them and then they do something, then there's going to be a lot of whistleblower opportunity. Listen, I would say that- You see, you like the whistleblower. Let, I don't like the let whistleblower. Let me just say you something. You do like Let me the say something. People that don't understand- And Stacey, I know, does not like the whistleblower. What do you mean? Creates business for her. That's true. I didn't look let, me, <laughs> let me just say this. People don't understand short selling for the most part. So anyone can buy a stock, as my partner Porter used to say. Anyone can buy a stock. Correct. It's not easy to short a stock. You can do it, but it takes a lot of work and you got to really know what you're getting into. Short sellers are targeted all the time for, oh, they're just trying to make money. Many times short sellers root out the evil inside of a company or expose the company for what's going on. They're effectively the whistleblower. You have situations where you can be short a stock and call the SEC and say, listen, I'm short the stock. I think there's an accounting fraud going on here. So you make money, stock going down and you get paid on the whistleblower. You should probably explain that to people because they're not going to get that. About short, well, listen, if Joe Blow is running a company, and it's a publicly a traded security. <laughs> and I'm examining the quarterly statements. And I'm looking, I'm like, there's no way they're making this money. They're moving line items. Their forecasts are not correct. I could short the stock. And it may be frustrating long period of time before it actually goes down. When you're short a stock, you obviously want the stock to go down and you buy it back later. But at the same time, people are like, oh, these short sellers, it's all rumors. It's not true. 
you know who the smart short sellers are. You know the people that are out there. And in the long run, it can save shareholders money because if you're a supplier to the company that's committing a crime, you have gotten paid, you may not have gotten paid. And if you stop it in time. Would you say in all your years as being involved in hedge funds that you went long on more or short on more? Ooh, good question. Probably about the same. That's a lie. Probably about the same. <laughs> That's a fucking lie. That's probably about the same. Just because the big so short. we need a back of the baseball card for Danny the yeah, same way we're going to get one for Stacey Zucker. Absolutely. Danny's all short. I want to go back because I think there's an important distinction that the two of you are trying to make. And I want to hear both sides of this argument. Danny clearly for whistleblowing where somebody comes through and reports that a company is doing something completely nefarious and wrong that's damaging to the economy, its customers, whomever. And you are totally against it because – in your business, you're ratting somebody out. It has a much different connotation than whistleblowing. What's your feelings on whistleblowing? And I believe that everything has a way of working itself out. And if someone's going to blow the whistle, it shouldn't be someone close to you. So you should be put in a position where you're going to be committing a crime for the sake of your boss at a company. No. you got to walk away then. Okay. You might as well report it and reap in millions of dollars but for But I don't want to earn that way. That's but not how I'm built. You're going to lose your job and not get paid at all because of what this company is going to be doing. They're going to be out of business. So are you okay if the person well, listen, walks you gotta, away, at least tells people like, hey, Wells Fargo is creating loans for people that they shouldn't. Like, clearly, that's an awful thing that they did. But then that person doesn't get paid for it. Like, would that sit a little bit better? It's <sighs> a good question. I don't know. And if by the way, we can bring in Judge Stacy here to uh, you know <laughs> well, direct this. When someone walks into my office and they say to me, "I need a bail," and da 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 and da 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 da, and I say, "Okay, fine." They're like, "Listen, this is what I do. I'm a alleged pharmaceutical gentleman. I'm involved with taking guns up from North Carolina. Whatever that alleged crime might be." I respect somebody more for what they do and being honest with me. And when they come into my office, there's sort of like a like an attorney-client privilege. And I believe in that. And I'm not going to blow the whistle on somebody. And things have a way of working itself out. You're talking about two different things. If your livelihood is at stake because of the company well, that you're working at. Well, what do you mean at? livelihood at stake? I think that what we're not seeing here is that there is a definitive distinction of context. Okay, one is a corporate context where the possibility of the impact to the consumer, the people within the company. And in your concept, we have confederates in a crime. Okay. So if you're in a company and you are not confederate of this crime, you're being affected potentially by theirs and widows and all kinds of people are being affected. Are you a savior? And thus a whistleblower. I want to, I want to, no, no, I want to take, (laughs) there was a company, a private company, Theranos out of California. It's a blood testing company. Oh, Theranos. That blood Theranos. testing comes out of California. Theranos, <laughs> right? They just got shut down and there was a whistleblower that exposed them. Let me tell you, if that whistleblower hadn't come forward, it would happen eventually. They were saying that their blood tests work. You sent blood tests into pharmacies, you send them back, it tells you blood sugar content, whatever. If that isn't rectified, then people have false blood tests going forward, okay? So you can look at it. You're actually protecting the health of the consumer. No, maybe baby time, mamas would be happy out there They were going to raise money based upon findings that Theranos product worked or didn't. So they exposed it. I think that's a healthy rooting out the evil and a healthy whistleblower situation. If you're a pharmaceutical company and you know that you're forging documents to show that a drug is efficacious in a certain treatment and the person working there goes, not in my good conscience, they change the samples. Just think about... Lentz. Lentz. They change, change the, the samples, Lentz. change the samples, exactly. Exactly. So you could have your Pervasic. So take Pervasic, for example, since okay. it's fictional. RD you like 90. that one? That was the RUG90. <laughs> Thank you. If that drug's on the market, people are taking it, and it's causing liver damage. How is being a whistleblower a bad thing? 
How is being whistleblower a bad thing if you're well? That protected? now you're talking about saving lives. You're I, getting into a whole about. different okay. aspect. Well, but you're saving people's financial lives. I mean, look at all the people that Wells Fargo was impacting by creating loans and ruining uh, the FICO know. scores. Yeah. It, it was horrible. So you're impacting them forever. So if that was you, you wouldn't be happy that someone actually stopped it before it came to you and ruined your credit rating. No. Thank you. No. I, Judge Stacy. thank you. <laughs> the Danny Rusts. Exactly. So the Wait last... a second. I think I did very well oh, in that whole I think you did, <laughs> did great. You did great. Well, the other aspect is, and, and this is an example of a case that I'm in right now that I can talk about because it's quite in the media. Go, the, girl. The crane collapse case. Yes. Right? I'm representing the crane operator. They are scapegoating him like there's no tomorrow. But I think they would have preferred that he had died and the employer walked away from him thinking he'd never get counsel. I happen to have known another crane operator who was friends with this guy. So I treated this like a criminal defense attorney. Well, I have found that the city approved plans they should have never approved. Thank God in the recent decision, the judge put that ad that hit the post, but minor, okay? <laughs> they drew the engineer, the contractor. Everybody knew those plans were bad, all right? So I'm going to stand up to make sure our city's safer. That's what my client's doing. But they're still scapegoating him. He's going to end up losing his career. Well, they're scapegoating and there's whistleblowing. They didn't want him to say anything. So crush him. So So he's a sacrificial lamb. So it's all his fault. Nobody else could be blamed for it. Hey, look, we've always solved the problem. Don't we feel better? But the problem exists. And this is a problem I pointed out to them 10 years ago. And if we point out the problem, is it going to prevent it from happening again? I mean, that's ideally... That all depends if people... Take action. Oh, well, that's what we hope for with whistleblowing. Right. Yeah, no, that it's a socially responsible thing and make money at the same time. Someone should get rewarded for finding these things. Now, right, but then there's always the pendulum. I mean, the Me Too movement, okay, that's in effect a whistleblowing concept, right? But yes. to what point is the pendulum gone too far? I mean, what about that poor comedian? He just had a bad date. He didn't do anything wrong. Of and, course, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, that's so, that's, so that's with, the whole situation there. <laughs> but a lovely guy, and everybody's yeah. like, I can't quite figure well, out what's listen, wrong here. Listen, I have a very dear friend of mine, and I'm not going to mention his name. Do I know him? Yes. Okay. And he is a celebrity, and something happened with him a long time ago. If I know who it is, can I say no, it? No, no names. Will okay. Be mentioned. All right. And I mean, come on. He was All right, go ahead. 18 years All right. old. I mean, somebody's bringing something up 20 years ago. You, you got to give me a break. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Oh, I know who it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll close with this. I want to bring all the whistleblowing back to one particular company. Oh, oh here God. we go again. Yeah, you know what? Tesla has potentially has OSHA whistleblowers inside mm-hmm. of it right now, financial whistleblowers inside of it right now, cars that aren't really safe to be on the road. It has everything you could want. So whistleblowers, wake up inside, outside, call the SEC, call the CFTC, call OSHA, call whoever you need to call. But I think there's a lot of problems going on Tesla. And, like then call Tesla. Stacey. and then call well, Stacy. Well, <laughs> and then Stacy call me when there's a <laughs> Exactly. That's symbiosis for you. That'll wrap us up this episode of Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. And this is Ira Jellison signing off. Stacey, thank you very much for, thank uh, for having coming. you, gentlemen. Good luck with everything. Thank you, Stacy. You've been listening to Bale Street. Learn more and subscribe today at BaleStreet.com. <laughs>